about a, it was a little over a year ago, uh, one of my uh, very best friends from high school, a guy I grew up with, I say high school years anyway, uh, Keith and I were pretty good friends. I found out uh, that Keith had cancer, and it was kind of a surprise. I saw it on social media. He and I kind of trade texts every now and then or messages, that kind of stuff, and I saw it. And I, was, I was surprised and kind of saddened by that. Uh, Keith's my age. Actually, he was a year ahead of me, so he's a little bit older than me, a year older than me. And, uh, but it was one of those things where you saw that he had cancer and then he had gotten sick and he was going through chemo. And it was kind of a shock because uh, Keith was a former Marine who is now a strength and conditioning coach at a university in Massachusetts. And so if you get an image in your mind of Marine who's now a strength and conditioning coach, it's probably pretty accurate to what Keith looked like. He is just like one giant muscle, just huge bodybuilder guy who is all about being in top physical condition and all that goes with it. And so uh, here he was, and then all of a sudden I found out he had cancer. And I uh, thought, well, if anybody's going to fight cancer and go through chemo and do that, Keith is prepared for it. He's got the, the, the ability to do that. And so uh, kind of followed with him. We traded messages, told him I was praying for him. Uh, Keith's a believer, loves the Lord. Uh, we kind of went back and forth through that. And so his treatment went on, and then I saw several months later a video he made uh, for his athletes. And it was like, I just finished chemo. I'm ready to get after it. He looked like he had probably lost 50 pounds. I mean, he looked like a ghost compared to what he was. But here he was saying, I finished chemo, cancer-free right now. We're going to go get it. Let's get after it. And I was like, awesome. That's great. And I didn't think a whole lot about it. And then uh, maybe two months later, uh, I saw a message uh, and it was posted by Keith's wife and it said, Keith just passed away. Um, and it was one of those things that it happened so quickly. And, and I know all of you, if we went around the room, probably have a similar story. Someone you know, a friend, someone you love. It hit me like a ton of bricks because here's a guy I went to high school with, right? He's my age. And not only is he my age, he's in better shape than I am, right? Like he's, he's getting after it. And he's one of those guys that you see and you think, oh man, he's in great shape. He's got this. He's going to do well with it. And I think even part of it is knowing him in high school. He's still like an 18, 19 year old in my mind's eye in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden Keith's gone. And sometimes I think we can know cognitively, yes, that we're not going to live forever. We know that we're going to die. We've gone through situations like that with loved ones or friends or different things. But it's kind of easy for us to keep it at arm's length. Like, yes, I know that's going to happen, and I know that's true. But in some ways, I think there's like this, this disconnect, but it's not actually going to happen to me. But when it was this guy that I went to high school with, who's my age, and that happened so quickly, it was like, whoa, right? we're, we're all going to die. We're all going to stand before the Lord one day. And sometimes we may think we have a lot of time left, and the truth is we may not. And I was thinking about that, and I was kind of reflecting on my friend Keith and, and how that happened and how it happened so quickly and went through that. And I started to think about it with what Jesus says here and what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, the Olivet Discourse. If you've been with us, it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives looking back on Jerusalem with his disciples. And we've talked about the last couple of weeks. He's really answering three questions because he's left Jerusalem. It's Tuesday, late evening, afternoon, early evening. He leaves Jerusalem for the last time in terms of leaving the temple courtyard. He has this kind of big, direct kind of argument with the religious leaders. He walks out and he says to his, he says to his disciples that the temple's going to be destroyed, that no stone is going to left unturned. And they're all like, whoa, what are you talking about? And they say, well, when is that going to be? 
And when is going to be your second coming? And what's going to be the sign of the end of the ages? They ask him these three questions. And so the Olivet Discourse is Jesus talking a lot about the future and what's going to happen and his second coming and what that looks like. And so we've looked at it the last two weeks, but this third week we're going to look at it and we're going to kind of shift our focus a little bit that Jesus says he is coming again and he tells us those signs. He tells them about when Jerusalem will be destroyed and he perfectly predicts everything that has happened in 70 AD. But then we get to this last part and he's going to spend a lot of time on telling us how we should live in light of the reality that he's coming. And so when we think about his second coming or us dying Right? Both of those are, are a certainty. Either we're going to breathe our last breath or maybe we're fortunate and Jesus returns before we do. But we are all going to stand before him one day. And so I want us to think about what Jesus says here about how we should live in light of that truth. And so we're going to look, go back just a little bit, look at the end of 24 again, but then look at chapter 25 here, this last part of the Olivet Discourse. And as we do, this is the way I want us to look at it. First, I want us to consider the mistakes we make, we often make, that leads us to not seeing the fullness of what God has for us in this life. And so he's going to give us a bunch of different parables and stories that kind of highlight that. And so first, the mistakes we make. Secondly, how Jesus tells us to live. And then lastly, why is it so important? And he gives us a bunch of examples here and a lot of things that he says. And so let's look at that together. Let's start with the mistakes that we make. And so if you go back to the end of chapter 24... Right around, uh, say, verse 45, he starts to tell these different uh, illustrations of different people and the way that we should live and how we miss it. And he does that at the end of, of chapter 24 from verse 45 to 51. And then he tells the parable of the ten virgins from verses 1 to 13 of chapter 25. And then the parable of the talents. And in all three of those, if you look closely, he talks about the faithful and wise servant versus the wicked servant and then he talks about the ten virgins and five were foolish and five were wise and then he talks to the ones about the parable or the the parable of the talents and he says there's the good and faithful servants and then there's the wicked and slothful servant and so it's a comparison in all those right and all of them he's showing us what it looks like to trust him and to follow him but then he also shows us what it looks like to make the mistake of not trusting him And so if you were with us last week, what we highlighted at the end of chapter 24, if you go back and you look at verse 42 with me, he just got finished saying that when Jesus returns, it'll be like Noah was during the flood. If you know the story of Noah and the flood, God told them it was coming and everyone mocked Noah. And they said, yeah, yeah, right. And then all of a sudden it started raining one day. And it was when no one no one was ready for it. And it happened. And he said, it's going to be the same way when I return. No one will know the time and it's going to come and it's going to be just like Noah and in his day, but I am, I am coming. And he says, in light of that, verse 42, he says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so we talked about this just briefly right at the end last week. That Jesus says, stay awake because you don't know. You don't know when he's coming and so stay awake. And so I started to talk just a little bit about what that means to stay awake. To be spiritually awake. To understand that there's more to this life than just what you see. And so when you start to think about what Jesus is saying and what that means, I think part of that is that you're seeing that the foundations of eternity that are underneath you, 
that there's a lot more than just the 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 or maybe 90 years that you get on this earth. That there's so much more to life than just that. And there's so much more to the world than just the physical things that we see in front of us. When I was thinking about that idea of living or staying awake, it made me think of a book that I read a few years ago by a guy named J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland is a Christian uh, philosopher, brilliant guy, has written a lot of really good books. But he wrote a book uh, a few years back called The Kingdom Triangle. And in it, he was talking about what it means to live in the fullness of the way God's designed us. And really what he was describing is what Jesus is saying when he says to live awake or staying awake. And the way that he talked about it, he says, he says uh, if, you're, if you're awake, you have a thick worldview. And if you're going to sleep or you're not seeing those things, you have a thin worldview. And so that's the way he talked about it, thick versus thin worldview. And what he meant was, is that a thin worldview is where you're not understanding that there is eternity underneath, that there is more than what meets the eye, that you put your focus on just temporal, physical things in the here and now and nothing else. And he says, when you do, you end up with a really thin worldview. You start to set your hope on just the things that are right in front of you and not the fullness of who God is and the way he created you. And so conversely, he then talks about a thick worldview. And he says a thick worldview is when we understand the essential aspects of life and meaning and purpose and the way God has made us, that he has created us to know and to love him and to know and to love others, that there is more than just this life, that when we die, there is life after death that there are all these things that go with it. And he says, if you understand those things, you will have a much thicker worldview. It'll be more substantial. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, living in light of his return, stay awake. Live with with your eyes open to the reality, the spiritual realities of who you are, the, the completeness of who you are as a person, that you're not just a physical being that has a few years on this earth, but there's so much more to it. But if you look closely in the the parables that he tells here and the illustrations that he gives, as Jesus often does, as the greatest teacher who ever lived, he tells these great stories and he helps bring out and illustrate his point. He gives us a couple of examples of the way that we go to sleep, that we don't live awake, that we miss the fullness of what he's created us for. And so if you go back to that, that end of chapter 24 where we were last week, he talks about the faithful and wise servant who the master has set over the household to give them their food at proper time. And then he says, blessed is that servant who the master will find so doing when he comes. But then he says in verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, The master of servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And he talks about the faithful servant versus the faithful and wise servant versus the slothful, wicked, foolish, all the examples he gives. And what he's illustrating is what it looks like to be awake versus to be asleep. And what you have here is that those that go to sleep that are missing it are like that wicked servant there at the end of chapter 24. Instead of seeing the fullness of who God is, And what he's doing and seeking to honor him, he goes, ah, he's not coming back. It'll be a long time. He's not going to be here for a while. And so he starts to place his hope in the things of this world. We start to take the things that are right in front of us and act as if that's all there is. And that's exactly what this guy does in the story. 
Instead of caring for those around him and doing the things that his master told him to do, it says that he begins to beat his fellow servants and he begins to get drunk and he begins to do these other things. And so often the way that we miss it is we set our hope in the things of this world rather than in things that are eternal. And it's so easy for us to do. It's so easy for us to do at all stages of life. When you're really young, it's easy to get into this thinking that I'm going to go out and I'm going to accomplish great things. I'm going to get after it. I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to do this. And oftentimes what happens? We leave our parents' house, right? We, we get set, set loose as we go to college or to work or wherever it is. And we're kind of on our own and we have this opportunity to do whatever we want. And so sometimes in youth, we do that. In the arrogance of youth, in the ignorance of youth, we go out and we go, man, I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to do whatever I want. And we start to seek ultimate happiness in the things of this world. Sometimes it's in pleasure. Sometimes it's in our work. Sometimes it's in our play and what we're doing. But I think we could go around the room and tell a lot of stories about all of us doing that at different times or in different ways. And so sometimes it happens in that way. Sometimes it happens as you get older. I'll tell you how many times I've, I've met people in their life that go through kind of like a midlife crisis. And they get to a point in their life and they think, I thought I would be somewhere else or it would look differently than this. And they're struggling with the way their life is going and the way the things are. And so what do they do? They turn to the temporal things and they go, well, what I need to do is I need to get a different job. Or I need to buy a new house. Or I need to get a new car. Or sometimes it's, I need to get a new spouse. And we start to do those things and thinking, if I just do those things, then everything will be good. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're putting our hope in the temporal rather than the eternal. We're ignoring God and the world he created and how he's telling us that his world works best. And we're placing it in other things. And so oftentimes the mistake we make is we start to live in the temporal things of this world. We start to put our hope and our happiness and things that are never going to be able to do it. Right? I, I was vividly reminded of that yesterday. You put your hope in your football team. And then they get blown out. And they're like, it's the second game of the season. They already stink. Right? It's a good reminder, though, how easy it is to do that. And then you go, you know what? That's not important. It's not the most important thing at all. But it's so easy for us to start to slip in focus on those temporal things. But then I'd also say there's another way in which we do it. Sometimes we, we slip into focusing on the temporal things, but sometimes what we do is we slip into the lie that we have all the time in the world. I'll get to that later. It's easy to do that in youth because in youth, you never think you're going to die. You're like, oh, that's, that's, that happens to old people. I'm not old. And it's easy to push that off. But even as we get older and as we get into life, maybe it looks differently. You get into a career and a job and you're busy and you're doing all sorts of things and you go, I'll get to that later. I can't tell you how many people that I've met. I've done this in my own life. We go, I'll follow God and I'll get real serious about my faith when, right? Well, when I get out of college, when I have a family, when I have kids, when my kids are out of the house, when I'm retired, then I'll give my time to do the things that are really important. And all of a sudden we look up and your life's gone. And you're going, where did it all go? And how did I get to this point? And we slip into thinking that I have all the time in the world. And you start to see that in these parables that Jesus tells. 
He tells this parable at the beginning of chapter 25 about these 10 virgins that are waiting on the bridegroom to come. And says five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Five of them planned and kept up and were waiting and they had the oil for their lamps. And the other five didn't. And oftentimes we don't prepare because we go, oh, that's coming, right? Or, or you go back to the, the end of chapter 24 in the wicked servant that goes, oh, the master's not coming. He's delayed. That's never going to happen. And so we do that and we act as if that's the case that we have all the time in the world. And we start believing that lie that that's the case. And we can end up day after day just kind of going along and we suddenly, years have passed. I don't remember, somebody, you tell me after, somebody told me one Sunday after that life's a lot like a record, right? That you started on the outside, but then as it goes, it gets closer and closer and the years seem to go faster and faster. I think that's true, is it not? I, I do that all the time. I look at the calendar and go, how do I get to be September? We just started this year and all of a sudden it's September and those things start to happen and so how easy that is. To start to operate that way, that mistake that we make. I remember of a video uh, from a band I like a lot that came out years ago, a band called The National. Uh, if you don't know who The National is, the, the tagline is, they're sad dad rock. <laughs> That's the joke. All their songs are kind of sad and serious. And, uh, but they had this uh, song that they made a video for, and the video is great. It's a three and a half minute song called Light Years, and, and the and the video showed a woman going through the entirety of her life in three and a half minutes, right? So she's born, she's a baby, and then a, a young child, and then she meets her soon-to-be husband, and then she gets married, and then she has a kid, and then all of a sudden it's her by the deathbed of her husband, and then she's alone as an old lady, and then it's her grave. And it happens in three and a half minutes. And you watch this video, and you go, whoa. In the chorus of the song says, all the glory of it all was lost on me. And he sang, like it goes so quick. And there were so many moments that I missed the glory of what was right in front of me. And how easy it is for all of us at different times. Right? We, we focus on the temporal and we put our hope in those things and we get kind of taken away with that. But then we also start to believe that I have all the time in the world and I'll get to that later. And then all of a sudden you blink and it's gone. And it's so easy for all of us to have that make those mistakes and miss the fullness of what God is calling us to. And so what does Jesus say is the answer? What does he tell us here as he's talking about this, as he's sitting with his disciples, looking over Jerusalem, talking about how it will be destroyed and what it will look like when he returns and how we should live in light of that. And what does he tell us? And the first thing that I would say, and this maybe sound like an oxymoron at first, but I really want you to think about this. He calls us to live expectantly but with endurance, expectantly, but with endurance. See, sometimes we think of expectantly, Jesus is going to return. And I said that last week, Jesus could return. And his return could be imminent. It could be this week and he could be coming back. And I believe that's true. And he tells us to live in light of that fact. But then he also says it may be a while and he doesn't tell us. And he says, no one knows exactly. And so sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think of living expectantly, it's like I've got to make great, big, huge gestures and I've got to do them right now. I've got to do all these things at once and I've got to go as hard as I can. And time is limited and you start to get in this, this almost frantic state of I've got to do this and I've got to make it happen and I've got to do it right now. And we oftentimes think of that expectantly with an intensity or, or living radically. 
And Jesus certainly tells us to stay awake and to live with this expectancy. But he also tells us to do it with endurance. He also tells us to continue to trust him and continue to walk with him. And I think there's a balance there of that expectancy, but also doing it with endurance. And he says there at the end of 24, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But then in verse 34, he says, therefore you also must be ready. He's coming in an hour you don't expect. But then he tells these stories about continuing to do it, right? Continuing to trust him and do it with endurance. And so what does that look like? How do we live with expectancy, but also with this endurance? How do we continue to do that day after day and to trust him? I may have mentioned this uh, a few weeks back. Uh, I go through periods in my life where I run. Usually in the spring and the fall when the weather's nice, I go, I'm going to run for a couple months and I get into it and I run for a while. Change of pace. I don't love running, but when I haven't done it in a while, I forget that I don't hate it and I start to do it again. (laughs) But this time, for the first time in my life, I decided I'm going to follow a program. I'm going to let somebody else tell me how to do it and the best way to do it. I'm going to follow what they said. And so I am on uh, week eight of a marathon training program, which is probably insane for a 46-year-old, but I decided to do that. I ran 11 miles on Friday, almost died, but I didn't, and I'm here. (laughs) I think that's the longest I ever remember running in my life. But I've been running, and I've been doing these things, and I've been following, and I started to read articles, right? Google's reading my mind, and now it gives me articles on running all the time. Uh, But as I'm starting to to run and think about it and thinking in these ways and follow this training program, I came across this thing this week that said, as you're doing this, and this program's doing it for me, I didn't recognize all that I was doing, But it says that you're supposed to do follow an 80-20 in your training, if you've ever heard this before. That you go out and you run, but you're supposed to run 80% of the miles that you run at a lower intensity. Slower, right? Keeping your heart rate at a certain distance and you're building your base and it's for your body. Like if you go hard all the time, for me, my knees will blow up and my ankles will hurt and everything will hurt and all that goes with it. And so you have to build slowly. So you do this 80% of what you do is lower intensity. But then it says the 20% you have to go really hard. You have to push yourself. And the perfect balance is that 80-20. They've done all this research and all these things on this. That if you go 70-30 or you go 50-50, you go, well, I'm going to be really intense and I'm going to go hard 50% of the time. It'll be counterproductive. Over time, your body will start to break down and it'll cause all kinds of problems. And I thought that's a great analogy of the Christian life in a lot of ways. See, so much of what God tells us, if we're going to live with endurance and we're going to live expectantly, so much of what God tells us is, is kind of mundane when we start to think about the big picture. You get up each day and you pray. You get up each day and you open God's word and you meet him there. And you begin to read and see what he says. You, you gather together regularly with other believers for worship to hear the preaching of God's word, to take communion, to do the ordinary means that God tells us the ways in which he operates. And we go, yeah, yeah, but I want to follow God. and I want to do the big things and I want to get after it. And it's like, but that is the way that God's designed us. And we need those things, those places that are there. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be times when we need to step out and boldly proclaim his name. And we stand up and we proclaim who he is and we seek to, to, to share our faith. And make a stand for the things that God calls us to believe in. When there's big gestures at different times, and it does happen. 
But so much of what God calls us to is to continue to rest in him and continue to come to him and continue to talk to him in all things. And so often we miss those parts. We want it to be great big gestures and I'm going to live expectantly and I'm going to get after it. And we don't do the ordinary means of grace that he's given us that sustain us through all that. And so often we can miss that peace. You know, I was reading this week in in Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, it talks about how God is our refuge and our strength. And I was thinking about just that picture that he's our refuge and our strength. When we think of refuge, he's our hiding place. He's the place he protects us. He's the place where we rest. We come to him and we rest in him. We rest in our identity of who we are in Jesus. But then also as God's doing that work in us, he's our strength. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of those as almost opposite. He's our refuge and our strength, but he's perfectly both. And we need that balance of resting in him, but then also trusting in him and stepping out in obedience and in faith and continuing to walk in him in all things. And so, so often what we do is we miss those simple, ordinary means of grace that he calls us to. And we focus on the things of the world and we go, well, I've got time for, I'll read my Bible. I'll read through the Bible next year. Or you get gung-ho started, and I'm going to make great big strides this year, and I'm going to do these things. And then you get to Leviticus, and you stop reading your Bible. And you go, I'll do it next year. And we start to change the way that we do it. Instead of just continuing to trust him in all things. You know, my reading plan is reading in Psalms and then the end of First Samuel. You know, at the end of First Samuel, Saul dies, David's about to take over, Everybody's mad at David. So much is swirling around him. And it says there in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't put his hope in that he's going to be king. He didn't put his hope in the people around him. He didn't put it. He stops and he comes before the Lord and he strengthens himself in the Lord, who is our refuge and our strength. And so if we're going to live in the way that God calls us to with this urgency and this expectancy, we're going to continue to trust him in all things, resting in him, making him a regular part of our life every day and all the things that we do. And I'll tell you, those ordinary means of grace work. They do. I don't know about you. I've done this a lot of times in my life where I'm gung ho and I'm reading my Bible and I'm doing those things. And then you stop and then you're all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm a struggling and then you pick those back up and suddenly things start to change and god meets you in those he meets you in those ordinary means and so living with expectancy but with endurance but then the second thing i'd say to you is he is he tells these parables here like the parable of the talent verse 14 down to verse 30 is that not only is it living with expectancy but also with endurance but it's living in light of how he's designed us and how he's gifted us He tells this parable here of the parable of the talents, right? It says, for it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he trusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is the time that we live in between his first and second coming, right? As we become believers and as we come to faith in Jesus and we seek to follow him, what happens? 
You're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked. But God being rich in mercy causes you to become alive in Jesus or to become awake. To see the reality of the way things are. To see them deeper than just the physical world. And you start to come awake to who God is. He gives you the very person of the Holy Spirit, God himself with you, indwelling you, working in your life, showing you what he's like, teaching you, with you in all things. By grace, through faith, you've been saved, and this is not your own doing. It's a work of God. You see that all the way like through Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 walks you through all that. And you're saved by grace through faith and what God has done. But you know what he says right there at the end of Ephesians chapter 2? You're not saved by your works. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God that no one may boast. But then right after that, what does he say in verse 10? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves you and he brings you into his family. You're now awake spiritually. He gives you the very spirit. And then he begins to shape you into his image and he has good works for you to walk in. And in that parable, he talks about how the master gives them all different gifts and then he goes away. Right. And you read through the parable and what happens? Two of the guys take the gifts they get and they go out and they multiply them. They walk in the good works that he's prepared for him and they take the gifts he's given them and they use them for their master's glory. And he returns and they says, the guy that's got five doubled it. And the one that had two doubled it. And what does he say to each of them when he returns? He comes back and he looks at both of them and the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And they're living out of the reality of who they are in Jesus. Right? God gifts us and he blesses us and he brings us into his family and he's uniquely designed you and gifted you for the good of those around you, for the people that he's placed in your lives to give glory to him and all the things and he wants you to walk in those things. But then you get to the end of that parable and all of a sudden it takes a pretty harsh turn. Verse 24 he also who had received the one talent came forth, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap what I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you should have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to the, everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And they cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. You go, whoa, took a pretty harsh turn. That elevated pretty quickly. Well done, good and faithful servant to cast him out. He's worthless. And you go, whoa, what was that about? And I thought about that parable a lot this week. I kept thinking about what he says and where he goes wrong and what's happening here. And if you go back to the beginning of the story, when he gave the one that's five and the one that's two and they went out and use it. But then it says the one that he gave the one in verse 18. But the one who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
And then he comes back and he says, well, why didn't you do anything with it? And he says, well, I knew you to be harsh. And I knew you to take what wasn't yours. And that you would take credit and all these things that he starts to say. And you go, what? Where did he miss? What was happening here with that servant that he totally missed? And I think he was operating in fear because he didn't know his master. He was operating in the belief that everything that he was doing was based on his doing rather than recognizing the talent that he had was actually his master's. That everything that he had been given was by grace. But he was thinking it was about what he does. And it's so easy for us to do that. In fact, that's what it looks like to live asleep. To believe that your life is your own. To believe the things that God has gifted you with are the things that you've accomplished, you've done on your own. That it's me and what I'm doing and what I'm about and I'm going to do these things. And that's what it looks like to live asleep. But to live awake is what the other two guys did. They saw the talents that God had given them and they recognized that they were a gift of grace, that they weren't their own. And when that happens, when you start to see that's the case, it frees you. It frees you to live out of the grace that you've received. I mean, think about this for a second. If you go all the way through what God tells us about who we are, you're created in his image for his doing on his purposes. You exist because God says so. He sets us in his beautiful world and says, go multiply, subdue the earth, do all these things. And what do we do? We reject him and we make it all about us. We ignore him in the world that he created. But then what does God do? He pursues us. And he loves us and he comes after us and he says, I'm going to do for you what you haven't done for yourself. And I'm going to offer a way for you to be redeemed and to come back into my glorious presence all because of what I do. And he does. And Jesus comes to us and he does everything that where we have failed, he succeeds. And he does every bit of us. And then he invites us back in. And not only does he invite us back in, he then gifts us and goes, you get to go and live out of the grace that I've given you. And when you recognize that, there is a freedom that comes. I am made for his presence and for his glory. And it's all his doing. And when I blow it, he shows up and saves me. And he sets me loose to make much of him. And that servant said, well, I knew you to be harsh. And so I buried it and I don't want to do any of that. Why? Because he didn't understand the grace that he had received. And in each one of these stories, that's the case. It's either people who recognize that all that they have and all they are is because of what God has done for them or they don't. That's what saving faith looks like. Do you recognize that all that you are and all that you have and all that you will ever be is because of the grace of God or not? And if it is and you start to see it, then you get to go and you start to do these things, not because you're earning your worth before him. You're not saving yourself by what you do, but you're trusting that he's already done it. And you're living out of the light of it. You're beginning to see him not only as your strength, but your refuge. He's the one that's got you in all things. And so you go, why is that so very important? I'm going to tell you, that's what it means to be a believer. It's the dividing line of whether you know God or you don't. He tells all these stories. And each one of them ends the same way. It's either enter the joy of your master or depart from me. I never knew you. 
And you go all the way through it. And then he gets to the end in verse 31 or the last section. And he says, when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him. And when he sits on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he says, when he comes, that we're all going to stand before him. Every single one of us is going to die one day or Jesus is going to return and we are going to stand before him. Every single one of us. And there's only two options when you do. You are either trusting in yourself or you are trusting in Jesus and what he's done for you. And the ones that are trusting in Jesus and what he's done for them begin to live out of of that. Right. You can read the end and it talks about what people were doing. Right. He says. Those that uh, he, he enters into the joy of the master, the sheep, the sheep from the goats. He says, when I was naked, you clothed me and you gave me food and you came to me and they go, when did we do that? And he says, whenever you did that to the least of these. And then he says to the others, you didn't. And they go, well, when did we? Well, you didn't do it to anyone. And it's easy to read that story and go, well, man, it sounds like you're saved by your works. People who did a lot of things get in and the people who didn't don't get in. But if you read through the whole of the gospel and everything that Jesus is saying, and even the context of the way in which he's saying this, what he's saying is that if you know the grace that you've received, your life will be changed. And you will begin to love other people in the way that God's loved you. And if you don't, you don't know them. If you don't recognize that all that you have is his, every bit of it, and you go and you bury it, Or you go, he's probably not coming back. I'm going to go get drunk and do whatever I want. You don't know him. But when you see who he is, he changes your life. And you start to live out of the grace that you've received. And so please hear this. It's so important because the Bible says this very clearly. But in our sinfulness, we mix it up so easily. You were saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done for you and nothing else. Martin Luther used to say, we're saved by grace alone, but not by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But it's not a faith that remains alone. Your life begins to be changed because you've come into contact with the living God of the universe. And he's begun to change you from the inside out. And your works are evidence that you know him. It's evidence of your faith. And if there's nothing and nothing changes and you don't care and your affections are not stirred for him, you don't know who he is. And I say that to you because you can't meet Jesus and understand what he's done for you and not be moved. It's not possible. But what he says here is when you do, he begins to have these good works for you to walk in. And so I want to end here. You go, why is that so important? Because we're going to stand before him. And you're either going to be putting your faith in Jesus or you're not. But why is it important right now today? Because what he calls you to and what he's equipping you to do and the way he wants you to live is way better than anything that you're going to come up with on your own. Do you believe that? That when you give your life away for him and his glory, it's way better than living for your own glory? God loves you so much that he wants your eternal destiny, but he loves you so much that he wants your joy right now. It's not an either or, it's a both and. 
He's so good that he wants all of it in every way. Oh, that we would trust him in that. That we would seek to follow him in everything, in every way, because of who he is and what he's done for us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We do thank you that we are saved by grace. Grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone. We thank you that you tell us that that is so true. We pray for the areas of our heart where we want to hold back and make it about us and what we do. Forgive us in the times when we operate in unbelief. When we believe that you're slow in your coming or you've forgotten or that you are not present, would you remind us that you are? Would you overwhelm us with a vision of the glorious hope that is to come? That we would live each day walking in the good works that you've created us for. And it would always be for your glory and not ours. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.